I was extremely surprised and humbled to receive the invitation to join you today. And I might be grateful. I'll let you know about 5.30 this afternoon. Um, also, we have backup today. When I do quiet days, I generally invite some monastic communities that are friends of mine to pray for the day. So we're being prayed for today by the Society of the Sacred Cross, which is an Anglican community in Wales. We're being prayed for by Our Lady of the Angels Trappistine Monastery in Crozet, Virginia, out in the wilds of Albemarle County, and the Carmel up in Baltimore. So if I'm a disaster, you're covered. <laughs> and this is one small shameless commerce division announcement. If any of you third-year students are looking for a position, my parish in Wheeling needs a priest. When the invitation came, I asked myself, what on earth might an off-the-beaten-track, rather old-fashioned, aging person have to say to bright, helpful, probably hip seminarians in one of the fastest-moving, most glittering, and probably superficial cities in the world? <laughs> and then I asked myself, if you had this chance, and this is probably it, to speak to your heart from seminar to seminarians, what would you tell them was of fundamental importance? And my answer was immediate and very traditional. I'd say something about prayer, and I'd say something about preaching as it relates to scripture. Those have been for me the twin taproots of ministry for something like 40 years. Finding a daily prayer practice and sticking to it and serious Bible study, I think, are critical. And the latter is sustained by the former. This morning, I'm going to talk a little bit about prayer as radical openness. And this afternoon, I'm going to talk a little bit about preaching as radical love. And behind both of them stand the practice of the venerable bead, a venerable name, I hope, in your seminary, um, whose commentaries, according to Benedicta Ward, were meditations on scripture leading to conversion of life through prayer. He gave to scripture its most important place, providing a language through which to listen to and speak with God. So since receiving the invitation, I've been dropping little slips of paper with ideas into that folder marked VTS. Where I come from in the southern mountains, women make quilts, and some of them have clear patterns, like the wedding pattern or the house pattern. And one is called a crazy quilt. And it's made by stitching together all the leftover bits of fabric um, and, and it has no pattern at all. And these talks might be the verbal equivalent. But if they're badly stitched together or a little bit random, I still hope they might keep you warm on a cold night. So let's think a little bit about prayer as radical openness. For many, intercession is a synonym for prayer. But as Pauline Matissaro in her extraordinary book called Clothed with Language writes, the divine is not to be named or presumed on as a source of power for humankind. 
Peter Gomes, formerly pastor of Harvard Memorial Church, uh, whose book, Good Book, I Would Make Required Reading for All Seminarians, describes tempting God as trying to get God to act in a way to satisfy our agenda. And these, I think, are both important caveats about intercessory prayer. We do not presume on, design, on divine power, nor do, we de, nor do we impose our agenda on divine benevolence. Before any particular way of praying, before any technique, anything we say or do, prayer is a desire, an attitude. The English writer Olive Wynan was correct. All our prayer consists in wanting God. We desire the God who desires to be desired, and who, with divine will and timing, responds to our longing. Prayer is more something we receive than something we do. Our desire is for God who responds to us with the gift of prayer. I'm suggesting that prayer requires a passivity that's difficult for most of us. We want to get busy and do something, often before we've discerned what it is we ought to do, or what might be in accordance with God's will. Prayer requires of us an attitude of total openness. And that's really difficult for most of us because being open risks being wounded yet again. Most of us have had experiences of deep wounding, so we're wary of openness. The good news is that God is not like an inept parent or a bad lover. We exercise a childlike faith that Jesus loves me with a love that does no harm. Faith, writes Pauline Matarasso, is for living in, with another, in deepening familiarity and trust. With those we want to be familiar, we must be open. Openness was the essential characteristic of the prayer of one of the 20th century's great spiritual masters, Thomas Merton. After the introduction, you know he had to be coming in somewhere. Interestingly, the only time he described his own, practic own personal prayer um, life was in a letter to a Pakistani Sufi scholar. And he wrote this, I have a very simple way of praying. It is centered entirely on attendance to the presence of God and to God's will and to God's love. Merton's great desire was for God, and his attitude was an attitude of radical openness. Some of you might recognize the name Sadhu Sundar Singh, once upon a time a popular, very popular Christian teacher who noted that the essence of prayer does not consist in asking for things, but for opening one's heart to God. Prayer is continual abandonment to God 
It is the desire for God, God's self, who gives us life. Openness is manifested for most of us by listening. Mark chapter 4, parable chapter. If you look through that, the lectionary field of the chapter is to do with the words to listen or to hear. I recommend to you that those parables are not about dirt or seed. They're about listening. The culture of listening, which is the basic orientation of the rule of St. Benedict, which, as you know, begins, listen, my child. Here's a little twist on this. The wonderful Roman Catholic theologian Lawrence Cunningham Uh, once professor of theology and chair of the department at Notre Dame, observed in a book that the opposite of listening is not speaking, it's busyness. (laughs) Somebody, oh yes. In my tradition, somebody'd holler amen at that point, but (laughs) I realize Anglicans don't holler amen or very much holler at all. The opposite of listening It's not speaking, it's busyness. Prayer begins with desire for God and is essentially profound openness in God's direction, which requires listening, not only not speaking, but not overdoing. In Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, Thomas Merton highlighted a perception, and now I'm quoting him, there is a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs, colon, activism and overwork. He continues, the rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everybody in everything, is to succumb to violence. And more than that, Merton writes, it is cooperation in violence. In short, Merton writes, overwork is a form of violence. Carried away by conflicting concerns, surrendered to too many demands, committed to too many projects, wanting to help everybody, (laughs) describes the reality of the lives of many pastors and priests and Christians. It's a kind of frenetic life that is expected of us. And you know what? Expectations of us don't always happen to need to be fulfilled. Sometimes, and especially when they cut us off from the source of energy in life, they shouldn't be fulfilled. In Mark 1, 35 to 38, Jesus withdraws for prayer. And the text says the disciples hunted him down. And those of you who are Greek students know that's a really strong, it's a word that means they hunted him down to kill him. And his disciples hunted him down, and they say to Jesus, essentially, well, get busy and do something. You know, t'was ever thus. 
try to take a quiet day and see how many things fill your inbox, right? But it was after that prayer in Mark's narrative that Jesus knew what he was supposed to do and where he was supposed to do it. Listening prayer is a source of discernment about what we should or should not take on. And if we don't do it, we risk contributing to the violence we abhor. Please bear with a short autobiographical interlude, which is exactly what I'm going to tell you this afternoon that you should never do. One reason I left academe was because at every level I experienced too much talk and not enough listening. This led to a lot of splashing around on the surface, but the spiritual treasures for which people long are in the depths. And we professors weren't taking our students there because precious few of us had been there ourselves. Teachers can't take students where they haven't been, and priests and pastors can't take parishioners where they haven't been. The terrible effect of a superficial education, no matter how many facts and skills it imparts, is that it produces a superficial society or a superficial church, one that places ultimate value on ephemera, on the temporal and not the eternal. Our Lord and Master himself said, do not labor for the food that perishes. Which the Son of Man will give you. Give you. Thank you. Not earned not earned. The food that endures is given, and we receive it in prayer of which Eucharist is a primary subset. Eucharist is the great paradigm of prayer for us. We are hungry. We desire toward God. We listen toward God in word and sacrament, and we are given what feeds and what endures, and it is given. We did not achieve it. Prayer as radical opening and listening helps us discern what perishes and what endures. And mysteriously, somehow, listeners provide the spiritual ballast that keeps the world and the church afloat. And as an aside, that's why monasticism is vitally important. Good monasteries are places where everything is organized for openness toward and listening to God. I know it's unrealistic, but I think parishes would be closer to imaging the, the kingdom of God if they were places primarily structured toward openness and listening to God. The great expectant silence as our priest elevates the consecrated elements at the Eucharist, is the locus of a radical openness. It's a point at which the God we desire comes tangibly toward us. 
Behind what I'm suggesting are New Testament spiritual promises. This year's lectionary gospel, Matthew, is the gospel of God's witness. As we read through the lectionaries this year, listen to how many times you will hear um, verbs with the, with the prologue, S-Y-N, sin, not S-I-N. I had to spell that for you. Difference. God's witness. Uh, it opens, you'll call him Emmanuel, God with us, and it closes, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right. Similar, John's gospel, last part of the gospel, the farewell discourses. Last evening, Jesus shares with his disciples, aware of the trauma they face and maybe how long his absence will be, tells them that he's not going to leave them alone or comfortless. I'm going away, he says, and I am coming to you. And there's the tension of the spiritual life. He's away, he's here. So Paul takes us off the hook about prayer in writing to the church at Rome. We do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit helps us in our weakness, and that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for prayer. Romans 8 is a great day for a quiet, great chapter for a quiet day. Prayer too deep for words. That's what I'm talking about, this radical openness, this radical listening, but not into emptiness, but listening toward and into the someone who is promised the backup. Sit at the master's feet in prayer, says the sadhu. It is the greatest theological college in the world. We know about theology, but Christ, says the sadhu, is the source of theology. We teach our children to stop and look and listen before they cross the street, right? moms and grandmoms and dads and grandfathers and aunties and spiritual friends and sons. Stop, look, and listen. It's good general advice for life's great crossings. Stop. Look around. Listen. And it's the great invitation of a Lenten quiet day. Be quiet. Etymology. Latin, quies, definitions, lying still. It's a permission to take a nap. Shh. <laughs> lying still, rest, repose, inaction, freedom from desertion. Uh, I'm sorry, freedom from exertion. English, quiet. First definition, no motion or activity. That's interesting. It's not about sound. It's about action. You don't have to do anything today. You don't have to accomplish anything today. Ego te absolvo. <laughs> Second definition is free from noise. You don't have to say anything or read anything. Synonyms for quiet include calm and tranquility. I love that word, tranquility. It's nice in the mouth as well. Today, 
provides you with the time to reconnect with the desire for God that brought you to seminary in the first place. And I hope that's true for the faculty as well of the students. That's why we came here. We wanted to give God something. So when you're thinking evil thoughts about your, your faculty, I was a graduate student. I know those evil thoughts. Remember, they came here for the same reason you did. We have a common desire for God to seek the Lord where he wills to be found, to quote the prophet Isaiah. It's a gift of time today to explore prayer as an attitude of openness and listening. So stop and look and listen and most importantly, listen. Jesus began to teach them many things. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen. Let anyone with ears to hear, listen. And the great African-American novelist and writer, Zora Neale Hurston, wrote in her book, Mild, uh, Mules and Men, Mouths don't empty themselves unless ears are sympathetic. Mouths don't empty themselves unless ears are sympathetic. And that just might be true of God's mouth, too. <laughs>